When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Government vs. the Robots, the fortnightly podcast that takes a look at how technology will influence politics in the future. This episode is the first of two episodes recorded at South by Southwest, or South by as the locals in Austin, Texas call it. South by Southwest began life as a music and film festival, but it's become something of a kind of curated zeitgeist, which appeals as much to politicians as it does to the founders of some of the world's biggest social networks. Unfortunately, you won't be hearing from some of the speakers, including prominent Democratic politicians like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Beto O'Rourke and Elizabeth Warren. However, the festival did feature streams of conversation on cannabis business, artificial intelligence, virtual reality, the future of cities and a whole lot more. This episode looks specifically at artificial intelligence. And first up, you'll hear from Azim Azar. Azim is the author and host of the Exponential View newsletter and podcast, which if you don't subscribe to, I highly recommend it. He talks to us about which technology is currently being most overhyped. After that, you'll hear from Tiffany Lee. Tiffany is an experienced lawyer who talks to us about the legal implications of artificial intelligence and the importance of the rollout of 5G for geopolitics. Finally, we talk to Meredith Broussard. Meredith is a New York University professor and author of the book Artificial Intelligence. She talks to us about what she conceives to be the limits of AI. Hi, I'm uh, Azim Azar, and I'm in Austin for South by Southwest. And by day, I write uh, the newsletter Exponential View, and by night, I do some other things. And what can people expect from Exponential View? I think of uh, Exponential View as a as a tour, and that I'm a tour guide of the of the near future. If you think about when you go on holiday, say you go to a place like Cambodia, which has got a thousand temples, um, every tour guide will show you Angkor Wat. They have to, but they'll also take you on their own particular curation, narration, edit of the country and give you their perspective of, of what it's about. And there'll be commonalities between them, but there'll be distinctive things about them. And what I see as my role within my newsletter and within my, my podcast is that I am a tour guide just taking you through that near future, bringing my experiences to bear. I've been in the tech industry for more than 20 years. I've been a regulator, an investor, a founder, a corporate exec, and a journalist in, in the space. So I've got a lot of different perspectives that I can bring to the table. And a lot, is now the most exciting time to have worked in the tech industry in the last 20 years? Uh, the tech industry is always throwing up interesting challenges. And I, th- I actually think that for technology, technology's sake, the run up to the dot com bubble was unparalleled because we really had no idea what to expect. And we hadn't really even got histories of Silicon Valley written. I think now the changes are going to be much, much more significant. They're actually going to be beyond 
tech. Uh, and so, uh, you know, I think of exponential view as being something much broader than tech. So the changes will be much more significant and much more profound. But in a sense, we are a little bit inured to them because we've just lived through the social explosion, the mobile explosion. And previously we saw the, um, the utter excitement um, and irrepressibility of the dot-com. And what you, you, you must be in touch with readers all the time of the newsletter. What do you think are the issues that exponential view readers are kind of most wanting to understand more about at the moment? That's a really great question. Um, I mean, I think that people are uh, very, very well equipped now to understand that, that there are some fundamental changes that are going to go on in um, our world. And when I say our world, I really do mean, you know, the systems that we use to organize ourselves politically, uh, our economy and our uh, business models and the structure of our industries and what success looks like. Uh, there's going to be some really, really deep and fundamental changes. And I think that the readers have started to understand that and have, in many cases are actively participating, whether they are startup investors or founders themselves or in policy or writers actively participating and documenting, chronicling or actually affecting that change. So um, your most recent podcast series, I think the most recent series, focused on political economy and yeah. technology. Can you tell me some of the things that you learned from some of the people that you spoke to in that series? Yes. I mean, you, you know, my observation is that technologies always impact our political organizations and our economic structures. And, and I think we've known that to be true for you know, hundreds of years. You, you couldn't have uh, priests controlling grain supplies without writing to keep a tally of how much grain there was. Uh, and, and so in the, the exploration that I did in that season of, of 10 to 12 episodes, the thing that surprised me most was that I spoke to two people who r- worked roughly in the climate uh, energy decarbonization sustainability area, one from the right of the political spe- uh, uh, politics and the other from the left. And there were more commonalities than there were differences about their fundamental prognosis of the situation and their, pro- their, their prescriptions. Um, and, and those prognoses included the nature of externalities and the nature of, um, you know, untrammeled uh, and unfettered activity by companies and some of their prescriptions included accounting for the waste and accounting for the pollution and accounting for the uh, those externalities. So that was one that was particularly um, interesting and insightful. But the one that really kind of blew, blew me away was talking to the Chinese investor, uh, Kai-Fu Li, where he describes the way in which China has mobilized um, across its uh, civil research, its military and its startup communities to tack into the AI movement um, in a way that is uh, quite a force to be reckoned with. And you've just bounced from climate change to the military in a very short space of time. And one of the things we talk about a lot on the podcast is which technologies will affect politics the most. And that's been quite well covered. I wonder if you have a sense of which sectors do you think are going to feel the, the biggest kind of political upheaval from the changes that technology will bring? I'm going to answer this question just by giving some historical perspective. If you think about the world that most of us who were born um, up to about 2005 have lived in and what we've experienced in our formative years of our adult life, um, it was through a bunch of technologies and systems that were designed and built in the late 19th century and the early 20th. So it was um, the car, uh, it was electricity, it was the telephone, Alexander Graham Bell, 1890s, and then it was... um, 
political parties, um, simple universal enfranchisement, you know, with a representative democracy. Um, And we lived with um, most of us or virtually all of us have lived in an era of mass broadcast media. That has been the underlying set of technologies that have then shaped the rules um, of business, the, uh, the the regulations, and the way in which our politics and media has run and operated. I think when we glance back in 15 years' time and look at the most formative technologies that are impacting our world today, it won't be the television, the radio, the Wright Brothers airplane, the car with the internal combustion engine that we own, and the fixed-line telephone oh, and mass media. It will be a whole set of new technologies and businesses built on that. And with that will need to come a new set of um, power relationships and ways of managing those, a new set of ways of thinking about governance, new regulations, new laws, new business models and new industry structures. Just to pick off one simple example, uh, that one example is that fundamentally over the last 40 years, the economy has moved from being one that's about tangible assets to one that's about intangible assets. And intangible assets behave very, very differently. They represent now about 80% of the value of companies, the world's biggest companies. Uh, so it's not, so in other words, their value, those companies is not in stuff that you can pick up and feel in a warehouse. It's in things like brand and IP and know-how and customer data. Uh, and yet we don't really have accounting systems and systems of risk management and systems of finance that know how to deal with an uncollateralized, uh, slightly vaporous, volatile, intangible company and intangible world. So just thinking about what do you, would you need to change in order to be able to govern that and tax that kind of industrial structure, um, well, that's quite a lot. So when I, uh, when, you know, when I, so to, to, to summarize that, in a sense, it's, it's all of them. I'm not going to point to quantum computing or gene editing. Um, in that in that short 15 to 20 year period, I think there will be a transition where we think that the fundamental technological building blocks of our world are fundamentally different to the ones that we had when we grew up as ch- children. And with that, we will have changed the systems around it. There's plenty to chew on there. Yeah. Um, we're at South by Southwest. There's yeah. plenty of hype. Yeah. Just quickly, you're not allowed to say blockchain. Okay. What's the most overhyped tech conversation right now? Well, I think, you know, everybody is talking about artificial intelligence. Uh, and you know, there is a risk that we miss the brilliance um, that is really going on. Uh, and, and you know, I find it a bit disappointing that uh, when I see what companies, incumbents do with AI, which is they create chatbots and they try to improve the efficiency of processes. That's not what a new technology can do to your business. When electrification came into industry um, as the main power source rather than sort of large steam turbines, um, it actually fundamentally changed the structure of, of the factory and changed the nature of products we could produce and changed the skill level of the workers. Uh, and, and so I think we've, because there's, there's hay to be made by creating a buzz, short-term hay to be made. A lot of people are talking about AI, but not that many are um, actually doing it. Very last question. I always try and end on an optimistic note. Yeah, sure. What's the best, uh, the greatest cause for optimism you've had in, in reading in the last few months? Well, I, you know, I, I think I'm optimistic because people are starting to, really starting to engage across all of these uh, areas. And one of the things I noticed with my readership is that I start seeing my readers having policy papers on these issues published by, you know, this institute or that journal, or I see their companies getting funded to tackle some of these questions. And, and that's pretty exciting because change is, you know, change happens by people.
Azim, thanks very much. My pleasure. Thanks very much. Hi, I'm Tiffany Lee. I'm a resident fellow at Yale Law School at the Information Society Project, and I direct the Wikimedia and Yale Law School Initiative on Intermediaries and Information. And Tiffany, you're, giving, you're talking on a panel this afternoon about um, solving AI's bias problem. Can you tell us what AI's bias problem is? Sure, that's a big problem right now. So there are a few problems with AI bias. The catchphrase right, that people are saying is that AI is racist or AI is sexist, and that's not exactly accurate. What's happening is that some of the data we use is biased. We may collect data in a biased way. We may design the systems in a biased way. Those are the issues I'm seeing with AI and bias. And who is the onus on to solve that problem? I think it's on all of us. So obviously, the companies who are developing AI systems really need to work harder to first identify bias. They need to train their employees to know that there is bias in many of these systems and many of these projects. They need to figure out how to solve the bias um, within their products. Um, outside of companies, regulators and policymakers also need to work on this problem, either through legislation that specifically deals with AI issues or legislation on the products. So, for example, there are some proposed laws in the United States that are specifically about um, the use of AI and algorithmic decision-making for criminal justice. So you work particularly on the kind of, you're a lawyer who works on the interface between AI and the law. So what are the issues you expect to see arising in the next few years? There are a few of them. I think AI and automation is a really big issue. So as we see AI being used more and more in different industries, you get the potential of losing some jobs, whether that's in medicine or whether that's in commerce. This is a big issue for every country. I also see data privacy being a larger issue because many of these complex AI systems rely on vast quantities of data. And when that data involves personal information, then we have to figure out how to best protect people's individual privacy. And the last issue that I think is really interesting is what happens when AI gets closer and closer to being considered sort of similar to human. We're seeing a little bit of this in terms of the legal debate about how to assign the copyright or how to assign intellectual property rights for AI-created or AI-generated works. And that's a little far in the future, but it's happening now. Are you expecting to see uh, more and more cases of AI being used in criminal justice cases? We are definitely seeing that. So we're seeing AI being used in predictive policing, uh, which can be, for example, predicting which people are likely to offend or which areas are likely to have criminals. We're also seeing AI being used in criminal justice sentencing, so determining how long of a sentence someone should have, that kind of thing. It's being used a lot and it's being used everywhere. Um, and some laws are being proposed now to address it, but I think we really need to do more. And what more can we do? Well, I am a lawyer, so my first thought is we should have better laws. Um, I think that criminal justice uh, issues are so important and the impacts are so harsh on people that we need to make sure that before AI is rolled out worldwide, that we have some protections in place. We need accountability. We need transparency. We need to know how the decisions are being made. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. And one uh, set of countries which does have legislation in place is the European Union. So we've got the uh, GDPR, but we also have the right to be forgotten in the EU. Um, can AI actually forget things? And might that be a problem for the right to be forgotten? That's a really great question. So I actually co-wrote this paper a few years ago about AI and the right to be forgotten. Uh, specifically, our title was Humans Forget, Machines Remember, because AI doesn't really remember or forget anything the way that humans do. Many of the issues that people have about putting data about the criminal justice into an AI or artificial intelligence system is simply that even if you pull out personal information, decisions are being made based on that personal information, even if it may be de-identified. So there may still be impacts on people or impacts on disparate populations. And which people do you think might experience those impacts? Well, at least in the U.S., it's likely going to be people who are in low-income areas, um, people of certain racial or ethnic groups who are you know, statistically more likely to um, offend or to be um, caught in criminal justice situations. And this just really perpetuates biases that may already be existing in society. And while we're thinking about AI and the law, um, I think it was last week that Huawei launched a lawsuit against the US government um, about the steps that have been taken to try and prevent Huawei doing business there and also in other parts of kind of the West. Um, what's your take on the way that increasingly companies are finding themselves at loggerheads with government about trying to roll out new technology? There are two big issues there. The first issue is the specific Huawei case, which I think is very complicated and has a lot to do not just with AI, but with 5G technology. So the 5G race is big. And right now, China is leading. The US is behind. The EU is behind. Really, everyone is behind China. And that's part of what's fueling this debate. Uh, cybersecurity of Chinese-made products is also a big problem, especially if you consider that the 5G infrastructure may be critical infrastructure. But aside from that, the issue of whether or not tech companies are doing the best they can to work with governments, that's a separate issue. And I think really all the companies out there are trying different tactics uh, for better or worse results. And the tech companies are all trying something different. And a lot of people are asking questions about whether, for example, Facebook is a is it a platform or is it a publisher or is it something in between? You're a lawyer. There's lots of questions about how to regulate Facebook and think about the content that's on there. Have you got any ideas? Well, Facebook right now is a platform, and that's a little bit different legally in the U.S. Um, and the EU. But 
basically speaking, Facebook is a platform or what's called an internet intermediary right now. What's interesting, I think, is Mark Zuckerberg's recent uh, post where he wrote that he wants to pivot Facebook to more of a private messaging company. This would really change a lot of things because instead of a pure platform, which is more public facing, this would change it to more, more of a direct messaging service. So one cynical take on that is that Facebook may be trying to evade liability. What would the consequences of them evading liability be? Well, the fear for some people is that if they revert to a more private messaging service, less of a public platform, then people won't know when bad things are happening. So you won't see the posts that advocate self-harm or advocate extremist actions or have, you know, what's called fake news and so on. And when the public or regulators don't see it, it's hard to enforce anything against Facebook. So that's one problem. I think the second question is really that people are worried that Facebook is just trying to deflect, that they're trying to do any change to get out of this whole privacy controversy they're in right now. I've got two last questions. My first one is, um, some people would say that with something like online harms and whether that's, you know, people encouraging self-harm or, or other stuff, um, that actually that's the responsibility of the people who are doing that and the platform has no responsibility. Others increasingly, and politicians seem to be jumping on this bandwagon, particularly in the UK, seem to think that the platform does have responsibility for that. Legally, is there better opportunities for enforcing the actions of people or the actions of companies on this issue at the moment? Enforcement against the companies is very difficult. I mean, in the UK right now, I believe ICO has all of Cambridge Analytica servers. So we see some enforcement every once in a while. But unless it gets to that level of giant controversy, often we don't really see anything happening. So in the US, for example, Facebook has repeatedly brought, been brought before the Federal Trade Commission, which is our largest consumer protection agency. Repeatedly over and over again, they've been brought uh, on cases involving data privacy violations. And every time they've paid what is a relatively small fee for such a large company, they've promised to do better, and then they haven't. So this mechanism may not work. Um, it may be working better in the UK. It may be working now in the EU with the GDPR. But in the US, we're still seeing some difficulties about how to actually enforce any of these rules. Uh, and just to ask, why is 5G such critical infrastructure? 5G is important because it's going to power the next generation of network infrastructure. It gets a little complicated, but if you talk about telecommunications, right now we're at a general level where we all have internet access, we have mobile devices and so on. But 5G will be a low latency network um, that will allow for what we consider right now super fast connections. This is really important for IoT devices, Internet of Things devices, all the smart devices that you have now, as well as smart cars and potentially smart cities. So this is why 5G will be likely a major game changer for any nation who starts leading on it. And just one last one. For anybody uh, who wants to keep an eye on the most interesting legal battles taking place at the moment around the evolution of technology and government seeking to regulate that, what, the, what should they be keeping their eyes on? The AI race is really important. AI and bias is very important as well. The 5G race is actually gaining in importance, although it's complicated as people don't think about it very much. Aside from those issues, though, I think we also have to just look at data protection generally on tech platforms, as well as the moderation of harmful content online. I think those are really important issues that we should all be keeping track of. Great. Tiffany, thank you very much. Thank you. My name is Meredith Broussard. I'm a data journalism professor at NYU, and I'm the author of a new book called Artificial Unintelligence, How Computers Misunderstand the World. And how do computers misunderstand the world? Computers are pretty dumb compared to humans. 
the book is about the inner workings and the outer limits of technology. So one of the things that I say is that there are fundamental limits to what we can and should do with technology. And it's really important to understand what computers can't do so that we don't have magical thinking around the possibilities of technology. And what's magical thinking? How do people get carried away with what's possible from technology? There's been a lot of linguistic confusion around the term artificial intelligence. So even to very smart people, the term artificial intelligence suggests that there's a little brain inside the computer and that the computer somehow is sentient. Uh, Hollywood influences this idea a lot because we think about things like the Terminator when we think about artificial intelligence. And the Terminator is not even vaguely real. It's never going to be real. There is no danger of a robot apocalypse. But the ideas from Hollywood and the ideas from speculative fiction get confused with what's real about AI. So the kind of AI that we have right now is a kind of AI called narrow AI. General AI is the Hollywood stuff. That's the singularity. That's the robots that'll take over the world. It's all totally imaginary. It's not real. It's not becoming real anytime soon. Narrow AI is what we have, and it's just math. Machine learning is just math. But if you don't know what machine learning looks like, or you don't really understand the math behind it, then it's easy to get confused and start imagining that machine learning is actually more powerful than it actually is. And you've written about the concept of techno-chauvinism, um, but I'm going to ask you about that in a second. Just before we do, I wonder, often people talk about technological utopia or technological dystopia as if we're heading for one or the other, and reality is always a kind of messy confusion of the two. Um, but I wonder to what extent ego and the egos of people in Silicon Valley are part of our kind of overestimation or overhyped expectations from technology. So I use the term techno-chauvinism to explain the kind of bias toward technology. Uh, techno-chauvinists think that technological solutions are superior to all other solutions. And yeah, that is tied in with ego. Uh, when you imagine that you are so powerful that you can create a technology that is going to solve solve a major social problem that has not been solved in centuries. It is a grand vision. And having the conviction that you're the one to solve it is, it definitely requires a lot of self-confidence. But it also requires confidence to admit when you're wrong, to admit when your technology can't solve something. It requires a lot of courage what are the limits of technology when it comes to solving problems in society? One of the limits of technology that I talk about in the book is in education. So for a long time, we had this idea that, oh, we're going to replace books with laptops or replace books with iPads. And we're going to uh, take education online and we're going to eliminate the classroom and we're going to eliminate you know problem sets and rote learning. And it turns out that Actually, books, the printed book, the codex, is a really efficient and effective educational tool. When you replace books with computers, you actually spend end up spending a lot more money because you have to buy and support an entire infrastructure 
to support the computers. So you have to get Wi-Fi in your outdated school. You have to redo the electrical system. You have to have 24-7 tech support. You have to train all of your teachers in new technologies every year. And you have to lock down the computers so that the kids don't just use them to play video games and look at porn. And when you look at all of the hidden costs of computing in education, and you look at cash-strapped school districts, it turns out it's actually a lot cheaper and more effective to use printed books most of the time. And you are a journalist with a data science background, a kind of really exciting combination of the two. And you work on particularly algorithmic accountability. Um, What's algorithmic accountability? So algorithmic accountability reporting is a really exciting new field of journalism. Uh, It is an outgrowth of data journalism, which is the practice of finding stories and numbers and using numbers to tell stories. So there are two kinds of algorithmic accountability reporting. One kind investigates algorithms, investigates black boxes. So increasingly, algorithms are being used to make decisions on our behalf. But it's really important to hold these algorithms and the people who write them accountable. So a really good example of this is ProPublica's machine bias investigation, in which they looked at an algorithm that was being used to decide who was going to go to jail and who was going to be released on bail. Uh, It was also used in sentencing decisions. And it turned out that that algorithm was biased against black people. And mathematically, there was no way for white people and black people to have the same chance in the math behind that algorithm. And that is obviously deeply unfair because the American legal system is based on the idea of fairness. It's based on the idea that you're innocent until proven guilty. It's based on ideas of equal opportunity, equal access. So if we have an algorithm that is discriminating, then we're not making a better world. So that's one kind of algorithmic accountability reporting, looking at black boxes. Uh, Another kind of algorithmic accountability reporting, which I practice, involves writing your own algorithms in order to commit acts of investigative reporting. So one of the things that I do in my work is I investigate a topic and I build AI systems in order to help me investigate. Can you give me an example of that? So one system I built recently was called Bailiwick, and it was a system I used to help investigate campaign finance issues. So back in 2014, all of us in the data journalism world thought that campaign finance was going to be the big story of the 2016 election. So we all geared up to do a lot of campaign finance reporting. And so I built a very complex AI tool to help investigative reporters quickly and efficiently uncover new story ideas in campaign finance data. Well, it turns out we were all wrong that the big story of the 2016 election was not campaign finance. It was fake news. But I had built the system and it was was really useful for finding insights in data. And there's a little part of me that feels vindicated that campaign finance has actually turned out to be a big story in the aftermath of the 2016 election. One of the things that I'm increasingly thinking about while making this podcast is our own personal responsibility or our own personal agency for trying to deal with some of these big systemic changes that are happening. Um, And I wonder whether 
algorithms kind of fence us in when it comes to our own ability to make decisions or, or pivot the ways in which we're behaving? Absolutely. One of the things that I talked about in my panel today was a time that I got trapped by an algorithm. So there were about six months when I listened to nothing but the Hamilton soundtrack on my, uh, on my iPhone. And so iTunes kept recommending Hamilton songs to me. And eventually I wanted to hear fewer Hamilton songs, but the algorithm had been trained by my six months of listening to think that I only wanted Hamilton. So I was really stuck. And it was a good reminder that delivering people what you think they want all the time doesn't work in the long run because people change and we want different things over time. And my last question is to ask, uh, we're at South by Southwest, there's a lot of hype, there's a lot of talk about the future, um, and people who do marketing talking about relationships with consumers, and a lot of people are talking about the role that AI can play in helping them build relationships. So are there limits to the ways in which we should be thinking about using AI to build relationships with humans? I think the really key thing is to think about techno-chauvinism, to think about the ways that we're assuming that it's superior to use technology in order to build relationships. Uh, it's not a competition. It still works to build relationships one-on-one -on -one or through print or through digital. All of these things work. One is not necessarily better than the other. And so I would urge people to confront their own techno-chauvinism, to challenge the idea that it would be better if we could do something differently and to make room in the world for all kinds of different levels of connecting and all kinds of different methods of connecting. Sometimes it's digital and sometimes it's human and they're both really great. Meredith, thanks for connecting with Government versus the Robots. Thank you. That's all from South by Southwest this week, but before we leave you, I just wanted to mention another podcast we've been working on, which explores the future of digital identity with a range of global experts. It's part of the Good ID project, and the podcast is called Inside Good ID. If you're interested, it's on all the same platforms as Government versus the Robots, so please do keep an eye out for it, and we'll be back next time. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.